Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill-Smith, and this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. Dumb, da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum dum da dum 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 da dum da dum da dum 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 So welcome to episode sixty-eight. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to our cozy little podcast. We trust you're all doing well this week. How are you well. doing, Jen? You've um, been you've been cooking up a storm. Cooking, cooking, and I've got food coming out of every room in my house. <laughs> I was like, coming out of where? I was going to say every orifice. <laughs> that sounds disgusting <laughs> and untrue. Uh, no, I. Uh, I've been just giving away food. I'm working on, as I mentioned last week on the podcast, that we're going to do a uh, vegan Italian pop-up. It's called Jimmy Two Times, Get the Pasta, Get the Pasta. It's like, it's a good (laughs) fellow's reference, if you don't know. Um, So we're doing like a vegan pasta pop-up. It's going to be at the uh, Ponzi Highland Cafe next to the Highland Inn and Ballroom in Atlanta on October 2nd and 3rd. On that Friday, it's going to be from 5 to like 9-ish, I think. And then uh-huh. on the next, and then on Saturday, it'll be noon to whenever we sell out. But we've been cooking up a storm, perfecting our recipes. So I have just, I've had lasagna and Alfredo, all vegan and gluten-free. Lasagna, Alfredo, a pink sauce, Pignoli cookies. I've eaten it for every meal and in between meals. <laughs> Post how, meal. How's your your family doing? Um, are they? Everyone are they tired is of it? very full. <laughs> very full. Uh, uh, and my good friend sounds delicious. Kristen and Matt came over last night to help. They uh, taste test, and Kristen helped take some nice professional pictures of the food because I am a dummy when it comes to photography. Uh, so <laughs> I sent them home with a ton of food. Like, get this out of my house. But um, yeah, it's it's going. It's going. We're excited, and we hope that you guys will come out if if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, if you um, if you guys are in Atlanta or near Atlanta, or you know, I mean, just fly on in, come to Atlanta, and I think you, <laughs> they can probably find like all the details on your Instagram or yeah. yeah. So we just like, started an Instagram. It. It's called Get the Pasta, Get the Pasta. Okay, uh, because all the Jimmy Two times were taken. Right. <laughs> uh, so uh, you can find us on Instagram at Get the Pasta, Get the Pasta, and um, we'll have um, information on uh, the pop up then. So yeah, fingers crossed go. we don't crash it's, and burn and that everything gonna be tastes delish. And if you crash and burn, at least you fucking flew, man. At least I jumped <laughs> off of something. <laughs> at least you jumped off. I jumped. Come on. It's more than most people can say. <laughs> I'm a cook. I'm so excited for you and I'm so proud of you. My brother-in-law that is a chef, um, I talked to him yesterday and uh i was picking his brain and he was like dude jenny i think it's so cool that you always do these like things that i would never do (laughs) because you could totally fail you're like wait what (laughs) i just thought i was making some food (laughs) it was like a scary man like i mean you could totally fail at this and i'm like "Ah!" (laughs) thanks for the advice 
Maybe that's just like the comic in you because I'm so it's like we're so used to failing. Yeah. Right? It's like, I mean, we've all bombed. We get rejected like every day all the time. from like, yeah, all the time. It's like you just are used to it. You like kind of you're like, well, I got to just keep going and do a thing and like get out there and try it this time. And like no matter how long you've been doing it or how good you are, like everybody faces rejection as a comedian, everybody faces a crowd that doesn't like them. And so I don't know. It doesn't bother me when people don't like me or don't like a thing. I'm just like, okay, it's not for you. That's yeah. fine. So I think maybe that's what this is. You're just like, I'm going to put something out into the world, which is such a brave thing to do. And I don't mean like, oh, you shouldn't do it. It's not brave. <laughs> but like it is. It's hard. It's hard to put something new out to the world, especially in a pandemic. Yeah. And but, you know, it's like if people like it, amazing. But- and if they don't, well, you tried. You know what? They're going to love it. Great for the pandemic. What? Carbs. Oh, yeah. So there's so many carbs in this. <laughs> Regular and gluten free. But Any kind of carbs you might want. Carb, carbo load. Yeah. They will all run a Jimmy 5K two times. in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably just sleep. Um, <laughs> or whatever. Dude. Well, thanks for your support. Really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> should we get into some quickies? I say yeah. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Okay. I have a question for you. Do you have any absolute deal breakers when it comes to a relationship? Like in your relationship, like is there something that Zach could do that you would be like, I'm calling a divorce lawyer. Like, I mean, I know there's like the big three. There's like, like cheating or murder, or like I don't know. Yeah, calling you mother or whatever. But like, is there something else that you? Well, there's would be like this is it? one thing that been a pressing issue throughout the duration of our relationship, uh-huh. and I go back and forth daily on should I divorce him, uh-huh. and that's um, that he is a backer inner. Meaning oh, he backs Zach. into parking spaces and it makes no fucking sense. It's <laughs> counterproductive. <laughs> it's just – it drives me insane. But he swears <laughs> that it is time-saving and efficient and it just mm-hmm. makes me so angry. I'm I'm so happy. I think we've talked about this before, but I'm so happy that I know Zach and know what a good person is he is he? at heart. Because <laughs> if this was the first thing I was hearing about him, I would be like, fuck that guy. Fuck I that know. guy. <laughs> it's, you know, it may be time-saving for you, but you know who it's not time-saving for? The people waiting for you to back in. And also me in the car. It's like, so we pull up home, and I'm like, yes, we're home. Oh, wait. Now I got to wait. Now we're in reverse. Now I'm a little nauseous because we just changed directions for no reason. Tick, tick, <laughs> tick, tick, tick. Time goes by. Okay, now I can get out of the car. It drives me <laughs> crazy. Oh, it's the same principle as like – it's another thing that Zach does is driving five extra miles to go to the quick trip to save one cent on gas. No. It doesn't make any friggin' sense, but he thinks he's beating the system. He thinks he's beating the system by getting <laughs> go, driving further to get gas. He thinks he's beating the system by being a backer inner, but it's it's not. No. Okay. He's he's uh he, he he's is a good system person. man. 
He is a good he's person. He's a good person. <laughs> That's what you have to remember. He's a good he's the father of your children. He yes, he is. <laughs> he is. <laughs> so what's your deal breaker? So I don't know what mine would be, but my quickie is about a woman with a deal breaker. So uh, a man named I got my information from the Seattle Times and Metro.co.uk. But there's a man named Andre Karpov who lives in Murmansk, Russia, who was playing poker in 2007 when he completely ran out of money. And he but, you know, he wanted to stay in the game. So instead of offering up his watch like you might see in the movies, a car keys or even just the key to the house, this dum dum decides to put his wife in the pot to stay in. Like he offered up like, hey, if I lose this. You can have my wife. Oh my god, that's like right? a like decent maybe, proposal, and like almost famous. Do you remember when one of the right, like, right? They she, she had to go with a different Penny band, Lane and yeah, and a, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, maybe he had just seen it. He was like, "Well, that that seemed like that turned out well." I don't know, oh but like god. then, of course, to like add insult to injury, of course he lost. So the next day, the man who had won the hand, a guy named Sergey Brodov came over to the Karpov's house and was like, I'm here to collect my winnings. And I don't know, like it did, the articles didn't say if he was, if they were friends and he was joking or whatever, but Karpov's wife's Tatiana was obviously pissed. She said it was humiliating and I was utterly exchanged. And so I'm guessing this wasn't like the first shitty thing that her husband had pulled. So she decided to divorce him. And then once she was single, she was like, hmm, like, you know who's, you know who's hot is that Sergey guy who won me in the card game. So those two started dating and they ended up getting married. Weird. So yeah. he was a love doctor. My he watchmaker was. is what I'm trying to say. Love doctor? <laughs> I don't know where I got that from. Matchmaker. Um, yep. He was a love doctor. And, uh, <laughs> a doctor of love. Um, Tatiana said, as soon as my ex-husband did that, I knew I had to leave him. Sergey was a very handsome, charming man, and I'm very happy with him, even if he did win me in a poker game. Oh, my God. What a weird turn of event. I know. Uh, So that's my quickie, man. I love that. (laughs) Weird. Okay, so my quickie comes from an article for Daily Mail. And it, and it was by uh, Lydia Caitling. And I really, really like this. I thought this was a really fun one. So what? basically, they did a poll of 5,500 married British couples to see what, what their wedding songs were. Okay. And then who stayed together and who broke up. Like what their first dance songs would be. Like if you could tell from the first dance song whether they're going to last or not. Yeah. Basically, they pulled the unhappiest couples or the happiest couples. Mm -hmm. They're kind of shocking. Like So for the unhappiest couples, Uh the number 10 worst song that means like if you played at your wedding, you're probably going to break up is Perfect by Ed Sheeran. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And then the number <laughs> nine was Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis Presley. Okay. That was kind of a surprise. Yeah. And then the number eight song, which is not a surprise, is John Mayer's Free Fallen. I think anything by John Mayer. <laughs> You're really playing curse. with fire. 
It's a curse. Um, if and then anything from Jessica Simpson. Yes. Yeah, stay away from John Mayer. Yeah. Um, he could only bring you harm. Um, <laughs> and then uh, number uh, seven was Michael Bublé's Everything. Number some of these songs, I honestly I don't know them. I didn't. Yeah. I um, like- John. Uh, number six was John Legend's "Stay with You," and then number five was Andy Newman's "You Got a Friend in Me," like the Toy Story song. <laughs> Is that what people are I dancing think to? I can tell you that if you're dancing to "You Got a Friend in Me," I think <laughs> maybe you guys are just friends. Maybe, Maybe you do, guys like, should a line dance be to that? friends. I don't know. <laughs> you got a friend of me. Uh, so <laughs> number four is Birdie's Skinny Love. I have no idea what that is. Um, oh, yeah. Come on, skinny love. <laughs> no, but that does not sound like a good <laughs> wedding song. Yeah, I don't know that it is a good wedding um, song. <laughs> number three is Snow Patrol's Chasing Cars. I don't know that song either. Is that no, terrible? No, no. Okay. I don't know that song. Number two was Jason Emraz, uh, mm-hmm. I'm Yours, okay. which I'm not surprised either because it's kind of an annoying song, in my opinion. <laughs> I feel like this whole list, I have no offense to anybody who is about to get divorced and had these as other wedding songs, but they're all kind of annoying songs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the number one worst song. Uh, well, a song for the unhappiest couples is One Direction's Little Things. <laughs> I would steer away from boy bands. Right? right. Like if, right. if the person singing the song is younger than you, I guess they're probably not. I don't know. Yeah. How old are people getting married these days? Dude, I don't like ever all these songs, like new songs, everybody is so young. Like when Billie Eilish, that bad guy came, song came out, I was like, this is good. I like this song. It's nice and catchy. And then I'm like, oh, she's 16. I'm an asshole for even listening to this song. <laughs> and this is not for my old ears. No. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, so- this is also in the UK, right? So. You know, yeah, have, this is all UK. Okay. okay, so the songs for happiest couples. Okay. Um, number 10 is Jack Johnson, Better Together. I don't know that song, but I'm nope. okay with Jack Johnson. Um, Elton John, Your Song. That's such a great song. That is a song. That, that is a song. <laughs> no, it's a great song. And then number eight is I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. <laughs> Which, Which seems I, very dramatic. <laughs> That's a very dramatic first song. Um, uh, seven is Phil Collins' You'll Be In My Heart, you know, from the Tarzan soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> Number six, Westlife, You Are So Beautiful. I don't know Westlife. But no. um, Etta James, At Last, very classy. I'm we, on board that with was that. sung at my wedding. Not, it wasn't my wedding song. And it actually wasn't – I didn't choose it, but my mom's – one of my mom's really good friends, who is like my aunt, has a beautiful voice. And I asked her to sing at my wedding ceremony. And I was like, whatever you want – like, whatever you want to sing. I don't care. <laughs> so it, she – that's what she picked. But it's – Oh. What was your wedding song? Uh, my wedding song was If Not For You by Bob Dylan. Nice. That's yeah. a good one. What was yours? Um, ours was Little Trip to Heaven by Tom Waits. Oh, I like so, that too. It was a good one. Mm-hmm. I do like it. Um, so, but this is not, but neither of those songs are on this list. Ooh, but, in the middle. 
The number four song is Leah Salonga and Brad Kane's uh, rendition of A Whole New World from the Aladdin movie. Um, okay. And then I I wouldn't, I wouldn't have pegged that one, but I mean, I guess it's like, maybe you have a shared interest in being in Disney. Well, wait till you hear. Okay. Let me, I, I'll let you know in a second what the number one song was. Okay. But number three was Frank Sinatra, The Way You Look Tonight. That's a great song. Actually, I think I'm almost positive. That's the song that I danced to with my dad. Because I wanted something upbeat and not mushy. Yeah. I cannot I can't be in the room for father-daughter dances. It's a sore spot for me. I, I get emotional. I like <laughs> when um that people, especially when people do that song that I loved her first. I hate that. Uh-uh. I can't. I have to uh-uh. run out of the room. But anyway. <laughs> um, so I I think we did this song because it was upbeat and we just bopped around and that was the that was the end of it <laughs> yeah uh, so um, oh man at at my wedding so you know we everybody knows dr dude fuck well like her family is like my second family and so they uh-huh. were all there and um and her brother and sister and and her parents and they all got pretty drunk aaron of course was like my maid of honor and at some point it's like after ben and i's first dance i had already danced with my dad and i don't we don't think we had a special song but we whatever we danced to something and then aaron's mom was like tipsy and she came over and she's like you gotta dance with your dad you gotta dance with your dad to this song. And I turn and we, we look listen to the song and it's sexual healing. <laughs> and I'm like, no, thank you, Kathy. <laughs> oh my god, that's awesome. I'm good, man. And she was like really insistent. She's really like it got in her head and she was like, I'm gonna make this happen. <laughs> and I was like, no thanks. <laughs> oh my god. I just saw this, um, somebody had tweeted this, but it was like a meme uh, that said, uh, you know that song that's really popular right now, the wet ass pussy? I hate that oh, word, but you know I have what not, I mean? I have not heard it, but I do know of it, honestly. Wow. And yeah. so um, someone was, uh, it was saying that people are like, this song is disgusting and, you know, it's inappropriate and for children and then it said also me at my seventh grade dance that song that's like skeet 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 to the wall and like I remember being at a wedding and like old people like dancing and going skeet 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 <laughs> so uh number two is mm-hmm. uh Stevie Wonder Isn't She Lovely Mm-hmm. which that's, that's nice. a great song it's and then song. the number one song was just such a shocker to me i like i cannot believe this but the number one song for happiest couples at their wedding is can you feel the love tonight <gasps> by elton john from the lion king so like all how many three disney movies made it onto the top 10 best wedding songs for happiest that's couples that's amazing i tell us you guys write in i don't know if you've ever been to a wedding with a uh a disney themed wedding like dance song or if that was something you did and yeah did you have why, a disney themed dance song why did you choose that hmm. <laughs> i want to know interesting but it's, choice are, and are you a happy couple that's what i want to know yeah i mean maybe that's why i'm such a miserable person is because i <laughs> <laughs> 
Because, because you I can't, can't wrap my head around this. Of Disney. Because I can't feel the love tonight. Maybe yeah. that's why. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that this was a cool article. I thought it was interesting. That is interesting. Oh, yeah. That was pretty funny. Good one, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. My story today has to deal with something we've talked about before, the dark web. Ooh. So I got my information from this amazing article in Wired by Mara Vindestall and the Washington Post by Kyle Swenson, an episode of Case File, which was uh, written by a woman named Eileen Ormsby, based, and this was based on her book called The Darkest Web. Ooh, um, The Darkest Web. Yeah. Drugs, Death, and Destroyed Lives. So, Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Okay. So in May of 2016, hackers cracked into a site called Besa Mafia, which was part of the dark web. So I... I've heard of the dark web. I have no idea what it is. So I looked it up and it's a collection of websites that have hidden IP addresses that require a specific software to get on. So basically the the, the reason why there's so much crazy stuff on it is, is because it's not searchable content. You have to have a specific browser, which is called the Tor browser to access it. And according to this article on CSO Online, you can buy a credit card numbers, all manners of drugs, guns, counterfeit counterfeit money, stolen subscription credentials, hacked Netflix accounts, and software that helps you break into other people's computers. You can buy login credentials to a $50,000 Bank of America account for $500. You can get $3,000 in counterfeit $20 bills for $600. You can buy seven prepaid debit card debit cards, each with a 2500 balance for $500. So wow, you can basically do anything. You can hire hackers to attack computers for you, and you can buy usernames and passwords. And of course, you can hire a hitman. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's what Besa Mafia said they would do. So they claim to be like a middleman between people who want someone killed and people who want money to kill them. So they would connect the two and then take the money from the person who ordered the hit, hold it in escrow until the job was done. So the hackers that broke into Besa Mafia found that people had paid thousands of dollars in Bitcoin to have people killed in Australia, Canada, Turkey, and the U.S. And the FBI got this list of targets, and they went to make contact with all of the intended victims to tell them what was happening. So it was actually an FBI agent in Minneapolis named Asher Silkey who got the job to inform a woman named Amy Allwine that her name had appeared on the site. Wow. So Agent Silky went with a local police detective named Terry Raymond to talk to Amy Allwine and her husband, Stephen, at the police department in Cottage Grove, Minnesota, which is like a sleepy town outside of the Twin Cities. When the couple got there, they told them that apparently someone who went by the name of Dog Day God had paid over $12,000 in Bitcoin to have Amy murdered. <gasps> and the only reason that she hadn't been killed, they thought, was that the website Besa Mafia was a complete sham. So the person that ran it was just taking the money for the hits and stringing people along trying to get more and more money. And then never actually yeah, yeah and never actually contracting with hitmen so or hit people whatever mm -hmm. i'm sure i don't just to be <laughs> to be politically correct i'm sure there are women hit out women. there mm -hmm. <laughs> hit women hit people 
Yeah. So the FBI showed Amy and Stephen the transcript of all of the communications between Besa Mafia and Dog Day God. So in March of 2016, Dog Day God had deposited Bitcoin and had written, for reasons that are too personal and would give away my identity, I need this bitch dead. Dog Day God provided a picture of Amy on a vacation in Hawaii and wrote, she's about 5'6", she looks about 200 pounds, and they wrote um, that the best time to kill her would be on an upcoming trip to Moline, Illinois. And they said if the hitman could make her death look like an accident, like by running her over, ramming into her car, that he would throw in some more Bitcoin. So Besa Mafia wrote back that the hitman would wait for her at the airport and tailor with a stolen car. And then when he has a chance, we'll make it look like a car accident. And then the Besa Mafia said if the car accident didn't work out, that the hitman would shoot her. So later, he reminded Dog Day God to to have an out, make sure you have an alibi. He said, make sure you're surrounded by people most days and spend some money to shop on things at malls or public places where they have video surveillance. But then the weekend that Amy was supposed to be killed came and went and nothing had happened. And the base of mafia site wrote that they hadn't had the opportunity and, and then also said, we're not interested in the reason why people are killed. But if she is your wife or some other family member, we can do it in your city as well. Adding that like, the dog day god could leave town when it was going to happen. So Besa Mafia suggested that Amy could be killed at her home and agreed that her house could be burned to the ground for an additional 10 Bitcoin, which is about $4,100. So dog day god agreed to this plan and said, it's not my wife, but I'm thinking the same thing. And the next day paid the extra Bitcoin to have Amy killed in the house. <gasps> So Dog Day God wrote that Amy has ruined my life and stolen my business and later wrote Amy has slept with my husband and he left me. And then they also said that they stood to gain something from Amy's dog training business if she died. So so they wrote these, all like, this out to the to the hitman. They said to yes. This this is what I'll gain if you kill her. I'll get Yeah, um, this is what I'll gain. Here's what happened. I mean, not it wasn't dummy. like So Dog Day God grew increasingly frustrated over the weeks because there was, like, no murder. They kept, like, of course, Besa Mafia, since it wasn't a real hitman, like, kept stringing them along. And Dog Day God would give clues about her whereabouts, saying, like, I can't keep asking where sh what she's up to without arousing suspicion. And mm -hmm. eventually, uh, Dog Day God demanded their money back from Besa Mafia, which, of course, never happened. Good um, luck because, getting your money yeah. back from a hitman <laughs> right. on the dark web. I know. Like, your you know Bitcoin what? back. <laughs> Where's my money back guarantee? Yeah. So when the agents asked Amy and her husband if they knew who this could be, they were both completely baffled. Like Amy was insistent that she had never been unfaithful to her husband, that they had a happy marriage. Neither of them could think of anybody who would really profit from her death. Stephen, her husband, was in IT and he had no interest or any part of her dog training business. They reluctantly gave the FBI names of two of Amy's colleagues and her partner in the business, who was actually her best friend who is the person who had the most to stand from her death, but it still didn't make any sense. So the FBI like kind of had to agree that this woman, Amy, seemed like a very unlikely target for a hit. She valued three things in life, like her family, her faith, and her dogs. And Stephen and Amy had actually met 24 years earlier at Ambassador University, which is a religious school in Big Sandy, Texas. And she was this kind of like bright and easygoing girl. And she and Stephen became regular dance partners because they the college would hold dances every week. But 
they this, they belong to this church called the Worldwide Worldwide Church of God, which is like very strict. Don't celebrate Christmas. You're not allowed to have any kind of like real physical contact on the dance floor. It's just a very strict religion. So mm-hmm. basically they were dance partners, but they weren't actually touching each other. So after college, the couple got married. They moved to Minnesota to be close to Amy's family. And Amy had always been really good with animals and had taught, she taught for a few years at a local dog training school and then started her own business called Active Dog Sports Training. The couple adopted a son. They brought him home when he was just a couple days old. His name was Joe. And in 2011, they ended up moving to their house in Cottage Grove, Minnesota. They were super active in the church. Stephen rose up to the rank of elder in the United Church of God, and Amy became a deaconess. And they were really close to Amy's parents who lived nearby. And they every Friday, the family had all of the family had dinner together. On sat- Saturdays, they all attended church services. Every year, they traveled to the church's fall festival, which was held at different sites around the world. And Amy, whose business was growing, she also traveled all around the country with friends to attend dog competitions. And in their spare time, like this is how straight-laced they were. Like mm-hmm. in their spare time, they the Alwines had a website called allwine.net, which included a list of access- acceptable songs and instructional dance videos showing how to have fun without excessive touching. Weird. <laughs> and Right. In one video, Amy is wearing khakis and hiking boots while Steven is in this like baggy shirt, polo shirt and jeans. And they're line dancing together to that song, We Go Together. Like, like we, we go together. Like Shamma like, Mlima. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From Greece? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So these are, I mean, yeah. you know. It sounds like a wholesome these- good time. Right. So... The couple was like stunned. They were like anybody could think that to want to harm Amy. She was well liked. She was a nice person, but because this was all happening on the dark web, there wasn't much that the FBI could do to trace the person behind it unless something else happened. Right. They basically were like, "We'll investigate, but you need to be aware. Call if anything suspicious happens." The Allwines installed a motion-activated video su- surveillance system at their house. Stephen purchased a gun. Mm-hmm. And he and Amy kept it under the bed. They went to the shooting range to learn how to shoot it. And then a couple months after the first visit from the FBI, Amy called them panicked. She had received two anonymous email threats. The first message came from an anonymous emailer registered in Austria, and it said, Amy, I still blame you for my life falling apart. I see that you have put up a security system now, and I've been informed by people on the internet that the police were snooping around my earlier emails. I have been assured that the emails are untraceable and they will not find me, but I cannot attack you directly with them watching. Here's what's going to happen. Since I cannot come after you, I will come after anything else that you love. And the email went on to list location information for Amy's family members, and they also dropped details that only someone closely following Amy could know, like where the gas meter was in her house and the fact that they had moved their RV and the color of the shirt that her son had worn two days earlier, which is so creepy. And then the email said, here's how you can save your family. Commit suicide. Oh my God. I know. So, and then the writer was like, here's how you could do it. And, and then a week later, this, a second anonymous message came and said, are you so selfish that you'll put your family's lives at risk? So 
Amy handed over a computer to the FBI, hoping that something on it would help the agents track down her potential killer. And Stephen gave the agents a laptop and his Samsung Galaxy cell phone. The FBI imaged all the contents and, um, and then returned them. And the FBI interviewed anyone who could gain anything from Amy's death, including her best friends, animal owners she worked with, trainers who worked for her, and of course her husband, Stephen. But nothing came out of any of the interviews. Amy, of course, was like, scared. She was paranoid. So she enrolled in the police department citizen academy and they practiced things like shooting targets and retrieving fingerprints. And And Amy actually, she really enjoyed it. And she asked to be assigned to the canine officer for her ride along. And she was like so enthusiastic about it, about, you know, giving tips on dog obedience and scent training that the officer actually let her tag along for an extra hour or two. So she really, she liked it. She did well. People liked her there. But even with the course, Amy was still paranoid, as you can imagine. She was suffering frequent migraines. She was becoming forgetful due to the stress. It was like the stress was just taking over her life. So that was in July. And like nothing else kind of happened. And so by November, Amy and Stephen had let their guard down a bit. One Saturday in November, Stephen and Amy went to church with her son. And then on Sunday, Stephen did a bit of bit of work in the basement in the morning and Amy baked and then she roast was roasting some pumpkin in the slow cooker and then after lunch she started feeling sick and her dad came over to work on a dog door at their house and Stephen was like can you take um can you take Joe their son so that he could take Amy to the clinic since she wasn't feeling well and so in the evening when Stephen went to pick up their son they ended up eating at Culver's, which is, I guess, was a tradition. And then they went home and their little boy ran into the house to find Amy. But what he found was completely horrific. Amy was on the ground in her bedroom, blood oh, no. pulled around her head <gasps> and a gun at her side. Oh, my and she God. Was dead. So Stephen called 911 saying, I think my wife shot herself. There's blood all over because the gun was right next to her. And the officer who responded to the scene was named Gwen Martin who happened to have been Amy's trainer at the Citizen Academy. And Gwen actually had to leave the room when she saw Amy and burst into tears. She ran a check on the Allwine's address and was shocked to find the report about the threats on Amy's life from earlier in the year because Amy had never told Gwen or anybody else she was in the Academy about the threats to her life. And police instantly, when they came to the scene, they instantly thought something was off. Like, this is not a suicide. Because the pumpkins was still roasting the yeah. slow cooker, and they're like, people don't generally start cooking right yeah, before you they don't kill bake themselves. Fresh bread, or like she was baking before that. That's right. Yeah. Other things were off too. There were blood smears on both sides of the bedroom door, and while the mudroom floor was covered with dog hair, the floor in the adjacent hall was clean. And luminol showed that the hallway had been cleaned and also it lit up some footprints that led back and forth from the bedroom to the laundry room. And Amy's gunshot wound was like a single bullet hole inside her right ear. And the pistol was lying next to her left arm, which was weird because she was right handed, Uh. right? So she couldn't have, if she shot herself and dropped it, it wouldn't have dropped there. But they looked at the video from the Allwine security system and it revealed nothing abnormal. Um, They took Stephen to the police police station, and he readily handed over his phone and submitted to a gunshot residue test and gave a DNA sample. He told them that Amy hadn't seemed depressed, and in fact, like, she had been getting better lately, and her parents confirmed this. 
Um, and then he reminded them about this FBI case. And the local police had actually never seen the full file. And it took two and a half weeks after Amy's death for them to get all of the FBI file. And that is when they saw the base of mafia messages and learned that there was someone out there who wanted Amy all one. Yeah. So, yeah. So investigators decided to search the dark web to see if they could find any other communications from dog day God. And they hit Pater when they found dog day God had gone to another known dark website and tried to buy this anti-nausea medicine called scalopamine. And, Apparently, a large dose of scopolamine will leave you completely helpless. And the autopsy showed that Amy did have a large helpless, dose of it like in her that system. it paralyzes you, that kind of thing. Uh. Yeah. So apparently, you get like super confused and dizzy, and then would either just—I mean, it could you could overdose from it, or but basically, you couldn't yeah. do anything to help oh, yourself. Yeah. So Stephen told officers that Amy's computer had been acting funny recently, and so police took her computer to examine it, and they also took all of Stephen's devices. And when they scanned Amy's phone, they could see that on the day that she died, she seemed to be growing progressively more confused because at 1.48, she visited the Wikipedia page for Vertigo, and then at 1.49, she typed D-U-Y, and then one minute later, EYE, and then it was just like a string oh, of wow. just nonsense, right? So it was like she was trying to understand why the room was spinning, but she couldn't do even like a simple search. So investigators dug into the Allwines devices again, and that's when they found that Stephen had been visiting AshleyMadison.com. What a piece of shit. Yeah, so Stephen confessed to investigators that, yes, he had been having an affair with a woman named Michelle Woodward or Michelle Woodard that he had met on the site. And Stephen had met Michelle online in October of 2015, so almost a year earlier. And their affair had progressed quickly, messaging back and forth. They met often when Amy was out of town for dog training sessions. And But it only lasted for like a month or so. Their passion quickly faded, but they still were sleeping together from time to time by early 2016. And when they interviewed Michelle, she told them that she had known about Stephen's wife, but it wasn't until she Googled him that she learned anything about his involvement with the church. And she said that when she asked him about it, he had broken things off. And this was in April. And he said he wanted to work on his marriage. She said she had seen him for lunch in September, and then he and he had told her about what was going on with the threats to Amy. And police confirmed that their affair really did seem to have been over even before the threats to Amy started. But then Michelle gave one detail that turned the whole case on its head. She said that one of the last times she'd seen Stephen was in March on his 43rd birthday. She said they'd been supposed to meet up for lunch, but then he texted her that he was running late because he had stopped to buy. Bitcoin. Oh. Mm. So that was enough for police to, I mean, of course they had sur- their suspicions mm-hmm. about Stephen, but that was enough for them to focus their investigation on him. So they went back to Stephen's devices and they started a forensic investigation. And in his devices, they found a secondary email address that he was using to get on pages like Backpage, which I guess is like a um, place where you look for Oh, okay. sex workers, and also uh, lonelymilfs.com. Oh. So, <laughs> which I frequent. Which you, yes, yes. Know of course, is. I know what lonelymilfs.com is. <laughs> which you know, you know. 
<laughs> so on on February 16th, a few minutes before Dong Day God was first proposed killing Amy in Moline, Illinois, Stephen had Googled Moline, Illinois on his MacBook Pro. And then also a day later, they found that he had looked up their life insurance policy. Of course, of course. In July, shortly before Amy received the first threat, the email threatening, saying that she should kill herself um, and then threatening her family, he had looked up information on her family. And they also found that he had searched for the Tor network, which is what is used to get into the dark web, and that he had searched how to get Bitcoin. Dumb, dumb, I know. So- the digital forensics specialist found archived in Stephen's MacBook Pro a note that had a Bitcoin wallet address, which is there like completely unique. And it appeared there 23 seconds before Dog Day God sent that same code to Besa Mafia. And then 40 seconds after Dog Day God messaged Besa Mafia with this 34 digit code, it was deleted from his phone. But of course, they had, they could yeah. recover the information. So, so now they had this definite link they needed between that Stephen was Dog Day God. And so, Stephen Allwine, who at the time was living with Amy's parents, was arrested and charged with Amy's murder. So, his trial lasted eight days. The prosecutor told the jury that he was seeing other women, but he didn't want to divorce her because of his position position in the church. Their church, which obviously, I mean, it forbade dancing. They obviously Murder. forbade divorce. <laughs> and <Right>. divorce. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's fine. Yeah. They said that Stephen had poisoned Amy with a large dose of sc- scopamine, either a killer or incapacitate her. Either way, while she was like dazed and lightheaded, she didn't die. And so Stephen shot her with the gun in their hallway and then moved the body into the bedroom and cleaned up the blood. And when he left to get gas and take his son to Culver's, he was careful to save the receipts. So when they were like, well, where were you? He's like, oh, I happen to still have these receipts. And Okay, the creepiest detail that came out, well, one of the creepiest details that came out of the trial was that on the 911 call, you can hear their little boy saying, why did she shoot herself? And Stephen says, I don't know. I don't know, bud. Come here. And then Joe asked, are you going to remarry? And Stephen Allwine says, I don't know, bud, and kind of laughs. And then Joe says, I'm just sad. Is that crazy? That's like as he's looking at his wife's body. Oh, my God. Um, That gives me chills. I know. So, yeah. The jury deliberated for six hours before finding Stephen guilty. And during the sentencing, friends and family told the judge how much Amy had meant to them. And then it was Stephen's time to, like, make a statement. And much of it was just this rambling statement about the dark web and how he couldn't have done it. But then he also said, well, I've been ministering to drug addicts and child molesters in jail. I've already converted three people. And the judge was just like, you are an incredible actor. You can turn tears on and off. You're a hypocrite and you're cold. And then sentenced him to life without parole, which I think is the most you can get in uh, Minnesota. So I think the saddest thing about the whole thing is that obviously like Amy's death could have been prevented. Local investigators thought the same thing. They understood why Stephen wasn't a suspect at first. Like Stephen and Amy appeared to have a happy relationship. There was no history of violence or substance abuse. The FBI was more focused on this hitmen on the dark web than they were on what was going on with Amy. 
but local investigators are like you they should have they should have looked in yeah. more thoroughly because they say that it, if you look at it really it's obvious that it was Stephen because threat assessment experts use a four-part checklist to determine whether an anonymous harasser is actually an intimate partner and Amy's harasser met all four conditions in that test. The person closely tracked her whereabouts, seemed to live nearby, knew her habits and future plans, and spoke of her with contempt or disgust. So if they would have really looked at it, they could have known that it was him, known that it was Stephen, or thought that it was Stephen, investigated him, and probably stopped Amy's death Yeah, I mean, what it just makes sense to do if this is all on the dark web and all these messages, doesn't it make sense to do an investigation of his internet usage and his and his computer? It just isn't I, I think that they did like they did take his they did take a computer and a phone, but then when when investigators went back after Amy's death, like when the local police went back after Amy's death, it turned out he had like 66 devices. Oh. So while they did search like a phone and a computer, they didn't actually search the 66 house to see. 66 devices. Where do you keep all those yeah. devices? Down in his oh, basement. I don't know. People have big houses out in the country. <laughs> they have a device room. So anyway, so that's – I know it's it's a real – it's a real shitty end, but that's my it's story. Good. It's good. But you know what? Yeah, do you have something nice? My story what? is a love story. And while your story is about the worst, shittiest husband on the planet, my story is about a uh-huh. wonderful husband and probably the best husband oh, on yay! the planet. Okay. So my love story, I wanted to do, as many of you guys know, this past week, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away on September 18th from complications of metastatic pancreatic cancer. So she was beloved by most people and was considered a warrior for gender equality. And if you're a woman and you own a home or you've signed a lease on an apartment or you have a bank account or you own a car, like these are all things that you can thank Ruth Bader Ginsburg for because without her, none of this may have been possible. And so this, I wanted to pay tribute not only to her, but by sharing um, her love story, which is the love story between her and the love of her life, Marty Ginsburg. Yes. Oh, um, so my this. um my sources came Yay. from an article for Vogue written by Michelle Ruiz, an article for the Washington Post by Lisa Bonos, an article for Town and Country Mag by Chloe Fusaint, and for Time Magazine by Rachel Greenspan. All female writers. Yeah. Very fitting. Yeah. Get it, girls. <laughs> um, and they were all wonderful articles. Okay. So In the 1950s, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a student at Cornell University when she was 18 years old. It's said that her mother, Celia Bader, actually left a college fund for her when she died of cancer the very day before Ruth's high school graduation. So it was like she passed away and Ruth graduated and she left her uh, college fund, which obviously changed the course of her life when she went to college. Um, and right. back then, Ruth going to Cornell, um, you know, back then, 
many women went to Cornell just for, or any university really back then, just for the sole purpose of finding a husband. You know, I remember back in, this was in like the early 2000s working at a boutique and this woman was clothes shopping for her daughter who just graduated high school and her daughter was going to, um, uh, what's the name of the college in Nashville? Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt. And I was like, wow, you must Mm -hmm. be so proud of your daughter, you know, for getting into Vanderbilt. Like what an amazing school. And she goes, the mother right in front of her daughter, the mother says, well, you know why we're sending her there? And I was like, what? And she goes, because, you know, so she could marry a doctor. And this was in the the early 2000s when this happened. Yeah. I don't think it was that uncommon when I was in college that that. I, I mean, I guess I was among women I knew, but also, but it just, it wasn't something that seemed so out of place, which I'm, I feel like it would be to it was just, women now who yeah, are it was going sh- into college. Like people talked about getting their MRS degree. What's that? MRS degree. Do you, like MRS, like oh, a Mrs. MRS. I've never heard of that, Mrs. but yeah. Yeah, that, but that just no. makes me so sad because it's like she had to have been so intelligent to get into Vanderbilt and then to have it all written off as like, like, you know, oh, well, we're just sending her there so she can meet a man. So Caitlin Morin, um, who wrote a book called More Than a Woman, actually said, if a woman wants children and a job, a woman's life is only as good as the man or woman she marries. All too often women are marrying their glass ceilings. It's like you're marrying... Mm. Yeah. You're marrying the highest level you can achieve because the person you're marrying, all of the support goes to that person in their career, which is such a fucked up notion. But so, you know, when Ruth went to Cornell, most of the women that were at that college were there to find a husband. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that there's also, according to Vogue magazine, um, they wrote about a recent New Yorker cartoon that showed a man on bended knee mid-marriage proposal. And the caption was, would you do me the honor of taking on even more responsibilities while my life remains largely unchanged? (laughs) And it's funny because it's true. Like men, you know, will still make more money than women, which is crazy. And then, and because they make more money, their careers are often given in more weight. And even um, mm-hmm. when women do work, they still shoulder most, usually, they shoulder most of the housework and childcare, which is even harder right now during the pandemic. Um, but because of these limitations for women that have to take on their job and the housework and the childcare, it's much harder for women's careers to thrive. So when Ruth Mm -hmm. entered Cornell, this was not at all what she had envisioned for herself. She wasn't put any limitations on what she was going to become. And while she might have been interested in finding love, she was not at all interested in setting limitations for herself. So thankfully, the universe sent her a gift named Marty Ginsburg. Um, so Martin Ginsburg, mm-hmm. who was one year older than her, um, was also a student at Cornell when his roommate set him up on a blind date with Ruth. According to their son, James Ginsburg, who told People Magazine, um, her father found her awfully cute. And then he noticed that she was awfully mm-hmm. smart. And Ruth would say about Marty, 
that uh, Marty was the most unusual fellow. He was the only boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain. She fell in love with his in mind too. Um, they had a class together taught by Vladimir Nabokov, who is, I guess, a famous professor. In his lit class, yeah. Marty correctly answered questions about Dickens. And Ruth was so impressed that he knew these answers. So she was uh, so impressed with his intelligence that she was like instantly enamored. And they both truly fell in love with each each other's minds. And they started dating and they would spend nights together reading Tolstoy and Dickens out loud to each other. I know. It really does. And in 1954, Ruth and Marty were married. And on Ruth's And Marty's wedding day, Marty's mother took Ruth aside to give her a small gift and some wedding uh, marriage advice. And inside the box were Mm -hmm. wax (laughs) earplugs. And she told her, (laughs) in every good marriage, it pays sometimes to be a little deaf. And so uh, and apparently Ruth had then passed this wisdom on to many couples, including celebrity couples like Jennifer Lopez and Alex Rodriguez. But what this means, like it pays to be a little deaf, is that when you're married to someone, you tend to bounce ideas off of one another. So they yeah. don't listen to their initial reaction and get frustrated, just like let them come back at you once it's set in, then let them come back with you to you with your true feelings. So don't hear their first thing, let them think about it and come back, which is like, it's such great advice. I mean, just even with all the recipe testing that I've been doing, like I'll give Zach a taste to try and then he'll go like oh and then I'm like fuck you like the second that his face just goes oh. and then um like yeah anything then like, yeah but then two bliss. minutes later he's like no it was really good it was better than the other one and blah 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 and like but it's like but just because his initial reaction was a, t- a head tilt and like a hmm and I'm like forget it I hate you yeah. and um but anyway <laughs> yes it should uh it pays to be a little deaf sometimes <laughs> so um but ruth and marty welcomed their first child after they got married a beautiful baby girl named jane and then um they both entered harvard law school together as couples do <laughs> as couples do as couples do with yeah. small children and so um crazy. so ruth started law school in 1956 um martin was one year ahead of her because he was a year older but when ruth went to law school in harvard she was only one of nine women in a class of 500 so which is really yeah. difficult and so after year one of college martin um her husband was diagnosed with testicular cancer so he had to recover and he had a number of surgeries and radiation therapy so ruth while t- you know taking care of their daughter um who was a toddler at the time, she continued to go to classes and do really well at Harvard Law, all while taking care of Marty. And then she was helping, and and Marty was still in school, so she would help him to pass and excel in his classes. She would go to her classes all day long. Then she would go to his Martin's peers and get all of the notes from the classes. And then she would come home, make dinner for the family, 
take care of Marty, who was sick, and then she would type out his papers per his dictation. She wasn't doing his homework for him, but he would tell her and she would right. um, <laughs> type it out. And then she would get back to her own coursework at um, first starting at 2 a.m. Even though so she was only crazy. getting like three hours of sleep a night, she was still remaining at the top of her class at Harvard. And so here was this woman who was just like, just doing it all and and excelling at school. And she ended up having to graduate through Columbia Law School because when Martin had to move to New York for work, which of course she went with him, the, the dean wouldn't allow her to finish her coursework at Harvard. Um, so she had to transfer to Columbia. So she tra- uh, graduated from Columbia. But even though she graduated at the top of her class and was so intelligent, such a hard worker, she wasn't able to find a job at a law firm because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, some judges wouldn't even allow her to clerk for them. And they would tell her explicitly that it was because she was a woman. But, you know, Ruth yeah. persisted and Marty backed her all the way. And while it feels, seems like Ruth was making all of these sacrifices for their marriage, Marty made them too for her. When he was a tax attorney and Ruth was pursuing advocacy work for the ACLU and other professorships, he took on all of the domestic work for the family. Um, And he was famously became a very good cook because of it. He said, Ruth wanted nothing whatsoever to do with the kitchen. (laughs) And he said, as a general rule, my wife does not give me any advice about cooking and I do not give her any advice about the law. This seems to work quite well on both (laughs) sides. So while she was excelling, he took a step back and, you know, took what took care of her daughter and her son and did all of the housework. And um, in fact, when they made a movie that was actually written by their nephew, Daniel Stipleman, um, which was called On the Basis of Sex, which is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the character that was depicting Martin Ginsburg in the movie was met with pushback from producers and test audiences because they were like, who is, this isn't realistic that the husband would be the supportive. Like usually the, the husband is, right. Is like the guy is, in the movie yeah. that's like being neglected and is angry because of it. And she's torn between how homework, like home life and her career, you know, because that's the story we hear every yeah. day. But so they were like, this is, but that's what the real story was. Like Martin was just like, yeah. you know, Totally fine. So when Ruth eventually became a star lawyer and she like paved the way for acceptance of gender equality and she founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU and then she started to pave the way for her own future on the Supreme Court. And all the while, Marty gave her the most, the utmost professional support. When she was under Bill Clinton, when he was president and she was a potential nominee um, for the Supreme Court, court. It's considered taboo to promote yourself to um, elected onto the Supreme Court, but uh, apparently there are no rules against husbands lobbying on behalf of their wives. So Marty launched his own campaign for her nomination. And um, Ruth told PBS, I wasn't good at self-promotion. I wasn't very good at self-promotion, but Marty was. She said that he was tireless at leveraging his own network of lawyers, media columns, 
economists and politicians. And after she got the nomination, Ruth said about Marty, I have been aided by my life's partner, Martin D. Ginsburg, who has been since our teenage years, my best friend and biggest booster. So she did obviously become a Supreme Court justice, which meant that she eclipsed her husband in his own field. You know what I mean? And normally yeah. people, men would have a problem with that. But apparently he sh- he showed no evidence of having any kind of a frail ego. He was just over the moon, excited and supportive of her. This is a quote from Ruth Ginsburg. She said, the thing about Marty was that he had such confidence in himself and he never regarded me as any kind of a threat. And Martin had to be, not had to be, he was lucky to be the second ever husband of the United States justice. Um, The only other person was obviously Sandra Day O'Connor's husband, John. And so they said that the together, the two were said to joke that they were members of the Dennis Thatcher Society, named for Margaret Thatcher's husband, uh, of men whose oh. wives have a, do- a job in which deep in your heart you wish you had, is what they said, according to Time Magazine. <laughs> um, but Marty yeah. said, let me just say that in my case, this is not true, only because I really don't like work. She le- She works like fury all the time, and the country is better of it. As it as it is, so he's like even admitting that like I couldn't do what she does. So, but he took on the role of being the um, first gentleman. He would host all these lunch- lunches for the Supreme Court of the United States spouses, Scotus's spouses, and who which were mostly wives, and they were all shocked when they would come to these events that he would throw and that they weren't catered. He would do all of all of the work himself, from picking out the china to making the Easter egg rolls. Like, he did it all. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and he just loved it. And it, apparently on each clerk's birthday, while Ruth was on the Supreme Court, Marty would bake a cake. He would make either almond or chocolate or something, ginger, lemon, or carrot. And Ruth would leave a note on it that said, <laughs> it's your birthday, so Marty baked a cake. <laughs> Isn't that so cute? <laughs> um, and yeah. so um, – Shortly before Marty's death in 2010, uh, when he passed away, he wrote a letter on a legal pad and left it in a drawer next to his hospital bed. And it said this, my dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit for parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we met at Cornell some 56 years ago. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the top of the legal world. And then he said, I will be in JH Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and whether the balance of time has come for me to tough it out or to take leave of life because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a jot less. Marty. I know. <laughs> and so, uh, sorry. Wah. Um, and then, so it, the very next day after he passed away, sorry, the very next day after her husband of 56 years died, Ruth still showed up to the Supreme court the very next morning to read an opinion. And she told, yeah, yeah she She's told amazing. the New Yorker, that's because he would have wanted it. 
And Ruth has never stopped fighting for equality and she's never stopped fighting for love and everyone else's right to love. And she was the first Mm -hmm. Supreme Court justice to officiate a same-sex couple's marriage and was part of the court's 2015 ruling to legalize same-sex marriage nationwide. And she's performed weddings of many other couples, including a professional opera singer, Alan Greenspan, and Andrea Mitchell. And even just this month before she passed away, she officiated a wedding for a family friend. And Mm -hmm. Ruth, in her Supreme Court confirmation hearing years back said i have had the great fortune to share a life with a partner truly extraordinary for his generation a man who believed at age 18 when we met and who believes today that a woman's work whether at home or on the job is as important as a man's and that's the love story of ruth and martin ginsburg oh my god i'm so happy you did that it's so beautiful I love it so much. I she was obviously such a hero, and yeah, to me and I, I mean every woman. Um, Truly, think yeah. Sorry, I'm a little, I'm a little choked up, Jen. I couldn't help it. <laughs> uh, it's so sweet. Did you watch? There was a documentary, I think, on CNN, the Notorious like RBG. Yeah. I haven't yeah. watched it yet, but I plan to. It's great, and there. I mean, there's a, just a lot of you know, footage of the two of them and they're really sweet and their family just has such like deep love for their love and you can see how much that that affected their family and it's just really beautiful. It's really beautiful to see people who are partners and champions of each other, you know, that's just, that's great. That's just great. It's so great. (laughs) It's so great. All right. Okay, so... Should we do something dumb and something we love? Let's do it. Okay. So I, I think, you know, I could pick any one of a million dumb things this week. Justice Ginsburg's death, the uh, non-charges for the murders of Breonna Taylor. And, yeah, I posted about this is something just completely inside baseball with comedy, but you know, yes. there's a comedian, um, quote unquote comedian, whose name is Brian Callen, who's fairly popular among the like Joe Rogan, Chris Delia crowd, you know, the stupid shock comics, um, who was recently outed as like four women came forward to accuse him of rape and sexual assault. And, you know, this story was like published in the LA Times and Vulture. And so whatever. I mean, it's I believe women. So um, I don't care if it was like a Twitter thread. But but this is like credible threats. A lot of women have come forward and said the same thing. He is now that happened just a couple months ago. And he's being booked at comedy clubs still. And it's just so disheartening. (laughs) It's so disheartening and awful. And so, you know, if you live in Indianapolis, um, he's supposed to be there well, I guess it'll no, he's supposed to be there next weekend. If you live there, call Helium Kamiya Club, let them know what you think of it. And you can look up his schedule. And if you, he's coming to your town, um, take a stand. Take a stand for the people that work at that club, for the fans, and for women who are comedians because they d- deserve to feel safe in their workplace. So, yes. Anyway, that's dumb. Um, and thank you I for, love- be- sorry to cut you off, but thank oh, no, you fair. for posting that because I know. 
um, that that's a hard thing to do, especially because like we're always made to feel like we can't piss burn any bridges or piss off right. bookers or whatever. And that's a big thing that you posted that. And and a lot of people followed your suit. So yeah, I, I really I want to well, I want to give um, some credit to both Jen Kirkman and Megan Gailey, who um, have much bigger profiles than I do and and we're posting about it. I know that Megan actually took the time to call um, one of the club owners and have a long conversation with them That's about great. why why this is not good. And then uh, Dwight Simmons, who's a good friend um, and actually is an Indianapolis comedian, so funny, look him up, basically took a stand and said, I won't work at Helium if this guy works there. Like, I won't work there again. And that's huge because that's his hometown. It'd be like, basically, he's cutting off work from himself. Yeah. And I am pretty sure that I will never get booked out of Helium. They're a big chain, like, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, which is fine. I'm like, that's fine. I I don't have that much to lose. So, but I just felt like it was important. Well, that's awesome. I'm not Thank sure. you, Sally. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> just, you know, keeping women safe with one Facebook message at a time. Um, but the thing that I love is all of our fans. And we yesterday did a matching of um, people uh, to donate to the Louisville Community Bail Fund. And um, and our fans responded. And you guys donated. And we matched. And we got to raise some money for people who are out protesting um, and trying to find justice for Breonna Taylor. So I appreciate you guys, and I appreciate all the people who are um, in Louisville, who are protesting, who are fighting the good fight, and um, and that's the thing I love. Thank you. What do you got? I just talked a whole lot. I'm well, you said all the edit that a bunch things <laughs> that I thought were dumb. So, but yes, I mean, those were all. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, uh, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the verdict on the Brianna Taylor case. Um, it's just so disheartening. And thank you for um, – Sally took care of that yesterday, posting for us to raise money for the Louisville Bail Fund. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And the thing that I wanted to say for um, something I love is do you remember um, months ago, maybe even a year ago, when that show Euphoria came out? And I was saying how good the show was. And I said, if Zendaya doesn't win an award for this show, I don't even want to live anymore. I do remember that. Do you remember? Well, she fucking won an Emmy. (laughs) Oh, good. Go, Zendaya. (laughs) Zendaya, however. um, um, So, yes, I was so, like, so happy for her. She so deserved it. And most of all, I love being right. I love being right. (laughs) No, but when I watched the video of her winning, I, like, almost cried. It's so well-deserved. She's such an incredible actress. And I, I think I have, like, an affinity for her, too, because, like, my kids have been watching her on the Disney Channel for so right. many years. So like I've watched her like grow up on yeah. screen and now she's just this incredibly talented um actress. I mean she was talented when she was a child, but I just mean like, you know, yeah. now she's a, a, a an adult woman um and just just incredible to watch on screen. So it's it just made me so happy to see her win that Emmy. That's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also Schitt's Creek won so much. Yeah. That was amazing. And if you haven't seen the reaction videos from when they won, I haven't. They all were in this like 
they all were in the same room, but they had individual tables, each one like socially distanced. <laughs> and but they were like just so thrilled for each other and so happy and surprised and excited. And it's just such an amazing show if you haven't watched it. And just that's another one that's so well deserved. So. Yes. And it also yeah. goes to show that Sally and I have really good taste in things. We have such good taste. Every, you should listen to us. <laughs> everything that we say that's great, they all win Emmys. And before you know it, you're going to see Ramona Singer and – Luann, Countess Luann Phillips. (laughs) You're going to see Countess Luann accepting her uh, Tony Award. Mm -hmm. For money can't buy a class. (laughs) Or her new song, uh, Viva la Diva. (laughs) Yes. We have impeccable Uh, taste. I have impeccable taste. (laughs) (laughs) Don't loop me in on that one. (laughs) That's all me. But only because I haven't heard it. Yeah. Diva the diva. (laughs) Yes. She's a very throaty voice. Luann. Man, that's our episode. That's it, man. That's it. That was a good one. We did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, good job, you. Thanks. Good job, me. Thanks. Good job, you guys listening. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for listening. We super appreciate it. If you got any stories, please send them to us. Sally, yeah, send them. Where do they send at them? Domlovepod at gmail.com. You can find, you can DM us or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Podcast. You can find us on Patreon. You can rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. And you know what? You guys would be actually. The coolest thing you could do is just share us with your friends. Like, say, hey, this is a podcast I like. I think you would like it because that's how we find new listeners because you guys have good taste. Yeah. And then maybe they would listen to you. So um, that would be awesome. Maybe we'll win an Emmy. And then maybe we'll win an Emmy. You you never know. (laughs) And you could say, I got in on the ground floor. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you guys again. Thank you guys for being awesome. We love you. We love you. And get out there and go do something dumb for love. Dum da dum 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 da dum da dum.